to the DC Debrief for Friday, July 21st, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up on the Debrief, an American soldier seemingly defects to North Korea, Israel's president visits Washington, CBN News Middle East Bureau Chief Chris Mitchell joins me for a conversation on that, senators debate Supreme Court ethics reform, and the clock is ticking for Congress to reauthorize the Federal Aviation Administration. I'll talk to an expert about that coming up all on this edition of the DC Debrief. But just a reminder, if you haven't done so yet, tell a friend or a family member about the DC Debrief. Help them to make it a part of their weekly news consumption. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and you can leave a five-star rating and a review, it actually does help the podcast grow. Apple Podcasts has all these metrics that they use. And so if you do that, uh, it will benefit the DC Debrief. All right, everybody, let's get into the debrief for this week. A U.S. soldier willingly enters North Korea. Pentagon officials say a U.S. Army private believed to be in North Korea crossed over the DMZ this week on purpose after facing disciplinary action in South Korea for assault. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. In terms of my concerns, I'm, I'm absolutely foremost concerned about the welfare of our troops. And so we will remain focused on this. Private second class Travis King had been recently released from a South Korean prison and was being escorted to the Incheon International Airport outside Seoul for possible further disciplinary action in the U.S. But instead of going to his gate, he joined a commercial tour group that was headed for the joint security area along the DMZ. Near the end of the tour, witnesses say the group was milling around the area along the border when Private King bolted and crossed into North Korea. He's the first known American to be detained in North Korea since Bruce Byron Lawrence in 2018. He entered from China and was deported a few weeks later. King appears to be the first U.S. soldier to defect to North Korea in more than 50 years. And we'll be waiting to see how this all plays out over the next few weeks and months. Israel's president, not the prime minister, visits the U.S. This week, the White House said President Biden will meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in the U.S. sometime this fall. It's not clear if that meeting will be at the White House or on the sidelines of the U.N., Israeli President Isaac Herzog did visit the White House this week, and he also spoke before a joint session of Congress where one of the issues he touched on was Iran's nuclear program. Perhaps the greatest challenge Israel and the United States face at this time together is the Iranian nuclear program. Let there be no doubt, Iran does not strive to attain nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. Iran is building nuclear capabilities that pose a threat to the stability of the Middle East and beyond. Now, there is tension between the United States and Israel surrounding judicial reforms that Netanyahu and members of his commission are undertaking. Netanyahu says unelected judges in Israel have too much power and need to be reined in. Protests have been ongoing for months now, and protesters are worried that these changes will chip away at the checks and balances that the country has had for many years. Netanyahu also pushing for more settlements in the West Bank, a controversial move that the Biden administration is vehemently against. And 
there is a growing rift in Congress between moderate and progressive Democrats on the U.S.'s relationship with Israel. Congresswoman Jayapal has called Israel a racist country. She has since apologized and walked those comments back. However, progressives, some progressives, boycotted Herzog's speech this week. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller tried to reassure Americans and Israelis that the special relationship between the two countries remains intact. We make clear in all of our engagements with Israel that our uh, our commitment to their security is ironclad. Uh, at the same time, we make we raise concerns that we have with them. And we will see how things develop again over the next few weeks and months prior to Benjamin Netanyahu coming to the United States in the fall. Trump January 6th target. On Truth Social this week, Donald Trump said the special counsel investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol told him that he is a target of their probe. And that means that Smith believes he has evidence that Trump may have committed a crime and would likely be indicted. Trump spoke about the indictment with Sean Hannity in a recorded Fox News town hall that aired on Tuesday night. And they're in a rush because they want to interfere. It's interference with the election. It's election interference. Never been done like this in the history of our country, and it's a disgrace. What's happening to our country, whether it's the borders or the elections or kinds of things like this, where the DOJ has become a weapon for the Democrats. Republican House members like Marjorie Taylor Greene reacted to special counsel Jack Smith's investigations into Trump. And he's weaponizing the Department of Justice against President Trump in a complete lie about President Trump and January 6th. And it's it's outrageous. I can't believe our country has to endure this. As did House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. If you're part of Biden Inc. family, you get treated one way. Everybody else gets treated differently. Every time President Trump goes up in the polls, they come after him. Democrat Raul Aguilar, who served on the House's January 6th investigation committee, said he appreciates the work of the grand jury in this case. Their track record is uh, been very solid when it comes to, to prosecutions. Uh, and uh, we expect that uh, the target letter and the work that the grand jury uh, continues to do will uh, meet that threshold. Senate Republicans are largely refusing to comment and presidential candidates are starting to change their tones, criticizing Trump's actions, but saving their sharpest attacks for the DOJ and the special counsel's office. Governor Ron DeSantis, for one. I don't think it serves us good to have a presidential election focused on what happened four years ago uh, in January. And so I want to focus on looking forward. I don't want to look back. I I do not want to see him. I hope he doesn't get charged. I don't think it'll be good for the country. Uh, But at the same time, I've got to focus on looking forward, and that's what we're going to do. So based on previous target letters to Trump, it's possible an indictment could come down at the beginning of next week. It would be his third indictment in the last few months. First, you had New York's Stormy Daniels hush money case, and then the Mar-a-Lago classified documents indictment in Florida. Religious freedom hearing. On Tuesday, the House Foreign Affairs Global Health, Global Human Rights, and International Organizations Subcommittee held a hearing on the dire state of religious freedom around the world. Now, you're not going to hear this many other places than here on this podcast and on CBN News, but our own correspondent Hillary Powell was covering this story. She said lawmakers were concerned about a few nations in particular. The world's largest democracy, India, called out for its increasing religious nationalism. Government actions, including the passage and enforcement of discriminatory policies, such as hijab bans, anti-conversion laws, and anti-cow slaughter laws, have created a culture of impunity for threats and violence by vigilante groups, especially against Muslims and Christians. 
testifying about these conditions, the bipartisan U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Rabbi Abraham Cooper declaring the State Department is not on the same page when it comes to Nigeria and India. Sadly, Nigeria has become a country steeped in religious freedom violations where people of faith and those of no faith at all increasingly live in fear of harassment, imprisonment, and violence. In a joint press conference last month, President Joe Biden gave India's prime minister a chance to defend democracy, saying there's no place for religious discrimination. Committee leaders urged the State Department to designate Nigeria, India, and Vietnam as countries of particular concern. Violations of the International Religious Freedom Act can make them subject to U.S. sanctions. No diplomacy ought to get in the way of calling it for what it is. If a country is, is engaging in serious religious persecution, they need to be designated CPC. USERF applauds the State Department's public condemnation of two key countries for increased religious persecution in 2022, Nicaragua and Vietnam. And you also heard from Republican Congressman Chris Smith of New Jersey in that segment. Artificial intelligence and the Pentagon. Also on Tuesday, the House held a hearing on the DOD and their use, or more to the point here, their failure to keep up with artificial intelligence. That was at the forefront of the of the hearing that took place this week. And CBN News' Brody Carter was on that story for us. AI legislators discussed three potential outcomes of using AI in combat. First, it could increase the destructive power of modern warfare. Second, AI also has the potential to lessen that power. And finally, the possibility that machines could unilaterally take power and go beyond our ability to control them. The country that is able to most rapidly and effectively integrate new technology into warfighting wins. Founder and CEO of ScaleI, Alex Wang, says the U.S. is already behind in the artificial intelligence race. China's investing the full power of its industrial base for AI. This year, they're in track to spend roughly three times the U.S. government on AI. And he should know because the Pentagon is a major customer. It awarded his company, Scale AI, a $250 million contract to help the U.S. military develop and deploy AI technology, including a decision-making tool called Donovan and robotic combat vehicles. Wang testified Tuesday that the U.S. should combine military data with current AI technology to establish a foundation for long-term success. Uh, it's certainly true that most of the exquisite capabilities that the DOD uh, looks, to, looks to build are likely to be developed at the secret or top secret level. And without that development, experts agree the U.S. risks losing global influence, tech leadership, and democracy to strategic adversaries, including China. And it's really important that your government and industry work together to realize those promises and to mitigate those threats. And education is key because some lawmakers admittedly don't even know what Twitter does, let alone the capabilities of artificial intelligence. For those lawmakers that are governing AI, the key is quickly implementing this technology while also keeping it controlled as the U.S. fights to keep up with China. Hunter Biden whistleblowers speak. A House hearing this week featured two IRS whistleblowers who claimed their years-long investigation into Hunter Biden's criminal activities was slow-walked by superiors at the Justice Department. Two IRS whistleblowers that Chairman James Comer and other Republicans have been touting for months. They testified in an open hearing on Wednesday, claiming the DOJ improperly interfered in their Hunter Biden investigation. Longtime IRS employee Gary Shapley. 
Based on my experience, I'm here to tell you that the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office and Department of Justice handling the Hunter Biden tax investigation was very different from any other case in my 14 years at the IRS. Shapley was joined on the witness stand by a man who, to this point, was only known as Whistleblower X, IRS criminal investigator Joe Ziegler. Now, Ziegler touted the fact that he's a Democrat and he's a homosexual, but um, also talked about uh, that shouldn't make his testimony any more credible and um, reiterated many of the things that, that Shapley was saying, seeming to corroborate a lot of the accusations that Shapley has been making over the last few weeks. The whistleblowers claimed that U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who led the investigation, was told by superiors by his superiors not to pursue lines of questioning involving Joe Biden. Now, Weiss has denied that his superiors at the DOJ limited or slowed his investigation. However, House Oversight Chairman James Comer defended the hearing and their investigations into the Bidens overall. The White House and Democrats would have Americans believe that our investigation is based on five years of conspiracy theories. But we have facts and new evidence continues to be uncovered by our committee revealing the first family's corruption. Democratic Oversight Committee ranking member Jamie Raskin notes that GOP claims that the Biden administration is weaponizing the Justice Department in their favor, turns a blind eye to actions Donald Trump took while he was in office. Now, unlike President Trump's blatant abuse of the rule of law and the relationship between the president and DOJ, there's no evidence that President Biden has involved himself in any way in the investigation into his own son, an investigation that's been overseen by Trump's appointed U.S. attorney. Now, the hearing at a certain point went in a direction that's not fit for a family podcast, but uh, Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene took out graphic photos of Hunter Biden uh, with claims that he had engaged in making pornography and, and sexual acts um, and posting and showing graphic video, graphic photos of, of the president's son uh, during the course of the hearing, a move criticized by multiple Democratic members um, at, at, who, were, who were present there. Essentially, Republicans were, are saying that who, who, who do you choose to believe? Do you choose to believe the IRS whistleblowers or do you, uh, do you believe the claims by the Biden administration and the, uh, by the White House that the president did not interfere in this investigation in any way? Um, and that's basically what this argument comes down to. There didn't seem to be a whole lot of new information that was presented in this hearing, but we did get to hear from a whistleblower who to this point had not spoken publicly to uh, affirm uh, the accusations made by by Gary Shapley. So again, this case continues to to, to move along, but still no smoking gun with, with regard to President Biden in terms of having committed any kind of crime involved with what his son Hunter Biden did. But um, of course, the weaponization of the Justice Department will continue to be a line of questioning that Republicans in the House will pursue. Senate Democrats advance Supreme Court ethics bill. The Senate Judiciary Committee voted to pass out of committee along party lines legislation that would impose stricter ethic reforms on Supreme Court justices. The bill would obligate them to adhere to the same disclosure rules for gifts, travel and income as lower court judges and would create a system that would investigate complaints about their behavior. And it would also force justices to be more transparent about potential conflicts of interest in cases that they might hear right now. That remains privately in the justice's own purview. The leading Democrat on the committee, Sheldon Whitehouse, says Chief Justice Roberts' failure to tighten and strengthen the existing code of ethics justices must adhere to compels the Senate to act. We are here because the highest court in the land has the lowest standard of ethics anywhere in the federal government. And justices have exhibited much improper behavior. 
not least in hapless efforts to excuse the misdeeds. This cannot go on. Defending this behavior defends the indefensible. However, Republicans like Senator Mike Lee argue that the Supreme Court's code of ethics is strong, that dark money groups are funding hit pieces attacking conservative justices for alleged ethics violations, and that it's improper for Congress to impose ethical standards on the high court, saying it's a violation of the separation of powers if they do. This really is an essential part of having an independent judiciary. And without the independent judiciary, there can be no rule of law. And it's easy to overlook all the benefits that we reap every single day as a result of that. Recent stories by ProPublica, a site conservatives contend is a liberal-backed news organization, has run high-profile stories over the last couple of months indicating Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito accepted lavish gifts from wealthy billionaires whose business interests later came before the court. But there's also been criticism of liberal justice Sonia Sotomayor using taxpayer-funded court staff to help sell her books. This is the first time a Senate committee has advanced legislation like this, but it doesn't appear to be going anywhere. It would require Republicans to vote for it in order to get it to the 60 vote threshold it needs to move to a vote. And even if it does somehow get the 60 votes needed in the Senate with a very slim Democratic majority, it's going absolutely nowhere in the House. All right, now let's take a deep dive, actually the first of our two deep dives for this week. And joining me to talk a little bit more about Israeli President Herzog's trip to the United States and the current situation, the state of play between the United States and Israel is CBN News Middle East Bureau Chief Chris Mitchell. He's joining us from Jerusalem to talk about all things relating to our two countries. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the DC Debrief. How are you? Great to be with you, John. It's always good to talk to you, sir. And uh, I mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast that um, before we talk about uh, Herzog's trip to the United States and what he had to say before a joint session of Congress, the White House made a little bit of news announcing that they've invited Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to the United States in the fall for a meeting with the president. It's not clear yet whether it's going to be at the White House or whether it'll be on the sidelines at the United Nations. But It is irregular that by this point in a president's first term that an Israeli prime minister wouldn't have already made a trip to the White House, isn't it? It seems as if President Biden is keeping Netanyahu at arm's length. Is that a fair read on the situation? Uh, It's definitely a fair read, John. Uh, uh, You know, seven months into uh, the coalition government here in Israel by now, typically Israel's prime minister would have been at the White House. Uh, It's also, you know, Good to note, as you had, that uh, it's not necessarily meeting at the White House this uh, this coming fall. It could be at the UN uh, or somewhere else. I, I think there is a definite mixed messages coming from the Biden administration. One of them is that uh, the, you know there's an ironclad ironclad relationship between the U.S. and Israel, which is true, uh, and also that they will not allow Iran to get a nuclear weapon. Uh, and yet, sometimes they uh, I was listening to Senator Langford last night. He says, you know, they say one thing, but the administration is maybe uh, not doing the same things in terms of Iran. But in terms of Netanyahu, that's uh, it, it's it's a frosty relationship that goes back actually uh, to the Obama administration when Biden was uh, vice president. And I think there is uh, major policy differences on Iran, on the Palestinian Authority, uh, on several issues that I think, and especially on judicial reform, 
that is uh, such a heated debate right here in Israel right now. I want to talk about that, the the latter of those issues, but I think they, they are all apropos. But the judicial reforms being pursued by Netanyahu and those aligned with him in his cabinet, what are they specifically looking to reform? Like we, we've heard the term judicial, you know, judicial review, ju- judicial reform, all these different kinds of things. What specifically is it that they want to change? Uh, two main things. First of all, uh, right now, the Israeli Supreme Court can strike down a law, even an election, based on the standard of reasonable or unreasonable. Uh, and so the, uh, the justices right now, uh, some to some certain degree, have carte blanche of what they can do. Uh, Robert Bork, in his book, uh, Coercing Virtue, years ago, said it was probably the most uh, powerful Supreme Court in the world, and that it represented believe it or not, a threat to democracy, and uh, which is right now the opponents of judicial reform are saying the reforms are a threat to democracy. That's one thing. The other thing is that um, the successors for the Supreme Court justices are chosen by the Supreme Court justices and a small coterie of people, basically allowing them to um, pick their successors and that came from the same uh, basic ideological bent. So those two issues, I think, uh, are what the reformers are trying to change. And right now, in just a few days, it looks like they're going to be voting on the reasonable clause. And uh, that should come out for Knesset vote next week. It's so interesting that, you know, here in the United States, uh, the the um I guess, for lack of a better word, the the faith that most Americans have in the Supreme Court, it's always usually pulled very high and it's at a historic low. And we we've kind of seen like the 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 rulings of the Supreme Court change with whether or not you have conservative justices or liberal justices in there. And in President Trump's last turn, he had the unbelievable stroke of fortune to have three justices to appoint to the court. And I guess, is it fair to say that Israelis' situation would provide, is it is it kind of like a more, the way it's currently set up, Is it was it done that way to avoid those kinds of, those twists and turns in, in the direction of the court one way or the other? Well, I think uh, if you look at the, uh, what the reformers would say is that uh, there was one man named Aron Barak, who in the 1990s really uh, usurped much of the power of the Supreme Court uh, to the court. And it really um, is probably the bastion of left-leaning ideology uh, here in Israel. And so it really has been uh, sort of the bastion. And I think that's why there is so much opposition right now among many uh, the people that do oppose the judicial reform uh, because it is um, probably the, the the greatest threat to this uh, power that they've had for about 20 years or so. and uh, But in the last election, the parties that are in the coalition right now, they ran on that um, reform. And so the voters basically uh, chose that. In addition to that, John, you know, many of the uh, opponents right now in the Knesset uh, we're actually advocating for some sort of judicial reform several years ago. So mm. uh, many people feel that the um, some of the opponents of judicial reform are using this issue as sort of a um, uh, to weaponize sort of coming against the Netanyahu government itself. So mm-hmm. that's part of the dynamic going on right here in Israel right now. 
And one of the other issues, as you mentioned it, the Biden administration has is the encouragement of Israeli settlements that Netanyahu and and those aligned with him in the Knesset also believe strongly. And what is the latest on Israeli settlements? What is, you know, how 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 much of an issue is this between the Biden administration and Netanyahu? It's a very big issue, and I think apparently the reports we've been hearing in the last couple of days is that the uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has frozen settlement expansion for the remainder of the year. Uh, it seems to be a, a something he's done under pressure from the uh, from the Biden administration. The the Biden administration really looks uh, uh, very unfavorably towards building in biblical Judea and Samaria. Uh, they believe it's an obstacle to peace with the Palestinian Authority, and and uh, you know something that it won't allow the two-state option to go forward. Uh, those that argue on the other side say the Palestinian Authority has been building in this uh, this area for a long time, and uh, that building kind of goes unnoticed or unchecked uh, by the administration or the EU or many others. In fact, the EU and and some others are actually helping Palestinians build in that land. Uh, it's mm-hmm. really a, a source for many of the uh, Jews that live in there. Uh, some could be as many as five to 800,000. You know, they feel like they're fulfilling biblical prophecy, returning to the land that God promised uh, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, so this is sort of a, a contentious issue that uh, is not mm-hmm. going to go away anytime soon. No, it's been around for a long time and, and and certainly will. Let's talk about Israeli President Isaac Herzog's speech before Congress yesterday and his visit overall. Again, unusual that the, the president is invited while the prime minister is not. Uh, in his speech to Congress on Wednesday, he highlighted the longstanding relationship between the two nations. And the Biden administration has been trying to reassure Israelis and our allies that the alliance remains strong. But at the moment... How would you characterize, or how would uh, how would the Israeli government characterize the current state of U.S.-Israeli relations? Well, I think they, uh, I think regardless of uh, the tension right now that's going on with the Biden administration, I think that uh, the relationship has weathered pretty strong uh, strains in the past, going back to the Bush uh, administration, uh, Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, you know, back then when there was a uh, tension between Prime Minister Shamir, uh, I think Israelis on the most part would feel like the relationship with the U.S. is is bigger, transcends any current administration. Uh, right now, there's a lot of tension and a lot of disagreement on several issues, Iran, settlements, uh, judicial reform. But I think generally uh, Israelis would feel that... Um, They'll weather this storm and uh, and continue, and and that the uh, the relationship will go on. One of the issues that Herzog talked about in his speech was Iran's nuclear ambitions. Has this issue? I think you touched on this a little bit in a previous answer, but has this issue gotten lost amidst all of the political turmoil going on in Israel? Because that seems to be garnering the most attention right now, at least here in the U.S. I really do. I really think. Uh, the judicial reform, the protests that are going on almost on a daily basis have really got the attention. And But in the meantime, uh, Iran seems to continue to progress on its ballistic mil- missile program, getting closer and closer to weapon-grade uranium. Uh, so I, I do feel like this issue has been lost uh, in that 
And the Biden administration and Netanyahu government have two basically uh, diametrically opposed approaches to this. Uh, Netanyahu and his government believe no more uh, negotiations are necessary. They don't trust the Iranian regime. And, uh, and while the Biden administration does seem to think that diplomacy still is an option and still can work, uh, it remains to be seen what's going on behind the scenes, John, and how much military cooperation is going on between the U.S. and Israel. They do say that the, uh, the military cooperation between the two countries is still as strong as ever, if not the strongest it's ever been. But whether or not that translates into the U.S. either helping Israel uh, launch a military strike against Iran's nuclear program or even joining uh, that remains to be seen. But that, uh, you know, regardless of what's uh, what's garnering the most attention right now, I think Benjamin Netanyahu, for most of his life now, or certainly for the last 20, 25 years, has been focused on preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Well, I think one of the things Herzog said that resonated most was he said, it is clear that America is irreplaceable to Israel and Israel is irreplaceable to America. And based on the history and the alliance, it certainly seems like like that is the case, even when there are times of disagreement. And of course, um, the political winds are constantly changing in in both of these countries. And uh, because because of that, Chris Mitchell's reporting from Jerusalem is exceedingly important, as always. So you can catch him at CBNNews.com and on his show, Jerusalem Dateline. Uh, it's, a, it's a can't miss show if you want to stay up on what's been going on in the Middle East. Chris, thank you so much for joining me here on the DCD brief. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you, John. Well, Congress is currently trying to reauthorize uh, the Federal Aviation Administration and the rules that are put in place for carriers to to fly across the country. And they're dealing with a number of issues uh, that will affect you if you try to fly somewhere in the next year, two years, three years. Uh, flying the flying around the country right now is a a, a big hassle for, for, for many folks. And so um, what Congress is debating right now really does impact your ability to move about the country freely. And joining me to talk about the FAA uh, reauthorization that Congress is debating is Professor Joseph Sweeterman. He's the director of Chaddock Institute for Metropolitan Development. He's also the president of the Transportation Research Forum at DePaul University in Chicago. Uh, Professor Sweeterman, thank you for joining me here on the DC Debrief. How are you? Doing just fine. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining me and giving me your expertise on this because uh, there are a few things that sometimes there are things Congress really wrestles over that really don't have a whole lot to do with what people deal with on a day-to-day basis, but flying is certainly one of them. And Congress is facing a September 30th deadline before the law expires to reauthorize the FAA. So the clock is ticking a bit on this. The House and Senate are both working on bills, and the House is hoping to have something done this week. The big issue that seems to be gaining most of the attention is the pilot shortage throughout the country right now. I see some industry experts believe about 18,000 positions could open up over the next few years what are some possible solutions to this pilot shortage problem? You know, that's really become a political football or a, a touch point. And, um, you know, I think what's getting the most headlines right now is the retirement age. Right now it's 65. Um, there's a push. Uh, airline industry is proposing to go to uh, 67 years, you know, which in some ways is consistent with life we're seeing today with people working past 65. They stay healthier. People exercise. There's certainly... Uh, being 65 now isn't what it was 40 years ago, but yeah. 
But I will say this has really touched off uh, some labor relations issues that the pilots are arguing. It hasn't been studied for safety. In some respects, they're right. There hasn't been a whole lot of analysis there. Um, other countries often put conditions on it, like if you do uh, over 65, you can only do domestic flights or small airplanes. So it creates all these international complexities for pilots. If they were to go still fly at 66, you couldn't just bid out trips like they do uh, uh, on their HR systems. And that messes up the whole promotion scenario when you're going to advance to a bigger airplane and get higher pay. Well, now there's going to be uh, all kind of wrinkles in that. So they're staunchly opposed and they're going straight to the media saying uh, this is a bad idea. And I don't think that's been sorted out yet. The clock's ticking. It's, uh, but that would be the single biggest way to get more pilots uh, uh, to solve this, this difficult problem. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a wild card how that's going to play out. So that keeps more pilots in the seats for an extra couple of years to kind of hold things together until more pilots are hired and trained. But the training of pilots is also one of the major areas that Congress is debating, uh, wanting to use more simulation hours to count towards the 1500 hours of training currently needed in, in order to become a, a certified full-time pilot. Can you talk a little bit about the thought process behind that? The proponents obviously feel like the simulators do a good enough job and should count towards that 1500 number. And I will say uh, that I certainly uh, support some sort of reform there. That 1,500 hours is just a huge requirement, pretty much out of line with the rest of the world. And, of course, uh, our standard for safety is higher. So uh, we not surprising the U.S. is pretty stringent. But planes now aren't you know like they were when the Colgan Air- airline crash happened in Buffalo decades ago. Uh in which we imposed a really high requirement. And back then, there was sort of a bigger military pipeline. So a lot of military pilots would come out and be ready to go commercial. Now we're seeing uh, air travel just balloon. It's really, I've been watching industry. I used to work at United Airlines a long time ago in pricing, and it was so exciting in the 90s when we had this growth. Well, we're seeing that again. I mean, post-pandemic, air travel is, is booming now with new airlines, Breeze and Avalo and uh, Spirit growing. And uh, everybody. And so now the airlines really are trying to bring on pilots at the same time cargo airlines are uh, expanding. And so there's a real shortage there and that pipeline's got to be improved. And I think there are common sense ways indeed to allow simulator time or uh, a a variable scale where some pilots need 1500, but others perhaps don't if they're experienced in certain areas. Airlines are pushing hard. I've also seen that the pilot shortage is affecting smaller carriers more than the larger carriers. Can you, first of all, when we talk about smaller carriers, what airlines are we talking about? And is it true that smaller carriers are being more adversely affected by the pilot shortage? Oh, yeah. It's a very odd thing in this industry. And uh, it's too big a discussion now. But, you know, the bigger plane you fly, the more you make. And that's not really true with trucking or with railroading, if you carry a 20 car train versus 100, your pay doesn't go up, you know, fivefold. Uh, but in airlines, you know, there, there is that that long pattern. So a lot of these regional airlines, you work your tail off at a regional airline, flying short hop flights, and you don't accumulate that many hours without, you know, ground time. And often those pilots move on to the big four, American, United, Delta, and Southwest, which have higher pay scales. And so they're constantly trying to fill those seats. And I think we're seeing uh, their pay go up at the regional airlines to balance that out a bit. Uh, 
Uh, but those airlines and what we call the ultra discounters and right now, Spirit and Frontier and, and Sun Country are probably the three biggest ultra discounters. They face that same thing as well. And they've had to had to boost their pay a bit to, to stop that, <laughs> that's, that turnover. The Biden administration is also pushing for airlines to do away with some of the junk fees, such as allowing families to sit together, ending hidden bag, bag checking fees. Uh, and then also, I guess you could call it a passenger's bill of rights, for, for lack of a better terminology, but doing more for passengers whose flights are delayed or canceled, something that we have seen uh, a lot of over the last few years. How much resistance are the airlines giving to these kinds of changes? Oh, there's big resistance. And I think it's uh, um, you have to be careful not to paint with a real broad brush. But I think everybody agrees right now. I say everybody mean consensus that it's pretty murky what you're entitled to if your flight gets canceled. And every airline has a different policy. You often have to go through their website to see what you're entitled to. If your flight's delayed four hours, you're allowed to cancel or you're not. And and we probably see need some standardization there. I think, though, a lot of these Bill of Rights uh, proposals go really far. In fact, you for flights four or five hours date, you're entitled to hundreds of dollars of compensation. And for a lot of people, especially low-income people, students, they want to go cheap. And while delays are a bad thing and, you know, they should be discouraged, we don't necessarily want to add $15 to every ticket so we can pay out big bucks if we have a problem at the airport. And I think uh, my sense is a, a bill of rights that starts out small and then quantifies some things that are kind of common sense. Your flight gets canceled, you can get a refund. If you're uh, uh, canceled the intermediate hub, you, you get a hotel stay. But when you start making every flight that runs late, big cancellation, big uh, remuneration, you end up a lot of lawsuits and a lot of money churned into that area. And the winners of that will probably be, uh, um, you know, a few people who get big dollars and, and the rest suffer at the airport when airlines are more resistant to schedule uh, as many flights because of the concerns of those of those fees. One of the things that may not affect everybody, but it affects people in the Washington, D.C. area and hence lawmakers is what's going on at Reagan National Airport. And um, there's a it's kind of a typical red versus blue divide on this. Um, Republicans in the House are going to pass an amendment that would allow the carriers who fly out of Reagan National Airport one longer flight per day. There's been complaints by lawmakers for a long time that not enough flights go. Not enough, there's not enough one-way flights that go to the West Coast or even to the you know the Southwest or, or in, in different places across the country. They're they're more shuttles you have to take to different places. And so they want to give these um, these airlines more of those longer flights. Republicans in the House are likely going to pass that here this week, but Senate Democrats say that that's dead on arrival. Senate Republicans like it. What do you make of, of what's happening with Reagan National Airport and the desire for some of these Republican lawmakers to allow some longer flights from Reagan National Airport? You know, I smile because it, it hits the uh, legislators directly that they fly out of Reagan. They know it yes. like the back of their hand. Yeah. Where this be the airport in uh, Austin, Texas, it wouldn't be grabbing headlines. <laughs> but you start affecting their flights and it's uh, it's a big deal. Uh, yeah. You know, I think what's happened in Washington, we got the triad of airports, BWI, uh, Dulles is really doing well and Reagan. It's no longer quite as compelling that we limit flights back years ago. So we can divert more flights to Dallas, which is our long haul airport. 
I think uh, what we're seeing now in air travels, people are going longer. Those really short hop flights aren't doing that well. You know, years ago when I worked at United, we had hourly service in a lot of markets on these really short haul routes. The New York Washington shuttle was like the big thing. And now uh, people tend not to pay, take those short hop flights that go longer. So I think Reagan Airport's not being utilized to the full extent. It could be with uh, uh, the 1250 mile rule. Uh, you know, of course, a lot of airlines have invested in the current system. So just lifting it overnight is probably uh, too dramatic with all the money they've spent for, for slots and gates and so forth. But I do think we'll see some modification so Reagan can uh, change with the times. Last thing for you, I know earlier in the year we had major delays, major cancellations due to computers and um, network issues. And I just it's it's been a few months since uh, since all that has happened and Rome wasn't built in a day. But can you give us a sense for whether or not the ball's been moving down the field at all in some of these airlines modernizing, making it so that their computer systems, if there's a glitch, it doesn't it doesn't wipe out half a day's travel for people? Yeah, I've been watching this for a long time. And of course, the Southwest crisis in December, January were just mind-boggling in proportions. I couldn't believe, wake up in the morning, looking at the data. Another day was 70% of our flights or 60% canceled. And that's just astounding, the uh, inconvenience that caused. And I think we're now in the period we're trying to see if the financial penalty that Southwest and other airlines faced when things go wrong is enough incentive for them to make sure that never happens again. And I think uh, we recently saw it with United. Uh, last summer was terrible too. And the airlines really vowed, we're not going to put ourselves out with this many flights again because we just can't live through these, these terrible meltdowns. The Southwest is paying big bucks out to, uh, some people say not enough, and they may have a case for that. But you know, we're giving people flight credits and uh, refunds and all kinds of things for all the problems they caused. Now we're in the period to see if, if their uh, actions are leading to uh, fail-proof methods so this doesn't happen again or Congress is really going to come down hard. I do think uh, uh, things have gone a lot better this summer and airlines did learn the hard way. But boy, uh, it seems like lately when things go wrong, they really go wrong and it seems to be something different. Different every time. Computer grits one time, pilot shortages another, weather another, and now we're seeing, of course, extreme heat. And boy, it's uh, it's a moving target. Now you can't do anything about the weather most of the time, but uh, you know I think one of the things that's helped is uh, fuel prices, oil prices have uh, have stayed down relatively uh, here during the course of the summer. So um, that's helped with the with the prices uh, people are paying at the moment. But this is a bill that's that's due at it's due at the end of September, so the clock is ticking on this. And again, this is something that's going to affect people listening to this podcast because just about everybody flies somewhere at some point in their lives. Uh, but I really appreciate your time here, Professor Sweeterman. Uh, again, president of the Transportation Research Forum at DePaul University. Dr. Sweeterman, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you much. And now it's time for the closer. And the Senate does not look like they are overly enthused about NASA's mission to 
to, to, to go to Mars. They, they are very skeptical about an ambitious plan uh, that would send a ship up to, to Mars to fetch samples of soil from the red planet. Uh, appropriators in the Senate are offering just $300 million in funding for next year for the Mars mission. That's less than a third of the $949 million that NASA has requested. Um, appropriators also say they have deep doubts about whether NASA can complete the mission known as the Mars Sample Return. It further said it would take back $300 million allocated for the mission if the agency cannot guarantee that overall cost will not exceed $5.3 billion. NASA estimates, as they tend to do, have have increased over time. It was originally expected to cost $4.4 billion, and now it's expected to cost more than $9 billion for this uh, for this all to work. So um, look for senators to uh, pare back the amount of money or only give NASA a th- less than a third of the money that they were looking for this ambitious space project. Of course, this is all in advance of NASA's goal of putting a manned flight and, uh, and and putting human beings on the surface of the planet Mars again in the future. We're not, not happening anytime soon. And that will do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Again, please make sure to tell your family members or your friends about the podcast. And uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating and a review. Let us know what you think about the show. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll talk to you all next week right here on the DC Debrief. Debrief.